but in the black belt counties that had faced the full brunt of the worst that Alabama had to deliver in terms of voter suppression, that turnout rate was 45%. So they exceeded the state average while having to overcome more than anybody else had to do. That's the power of the resistance. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, my conversation is with Professor Carol Anderson. She's the author of several books and essays, and she's also the professor and chair of African-American studies at Emory University in Georgia. You know, and I have to say, when I first learned that I'd have the opportunity to talk to Professor Anderson about her new book, One Person, No Vote, I was beside myself. I was truly beside myself with joy because I've admired Carol Anderson's work since reading her best-selling book, White Rage. And White Rage is about the struggle for equal rights and the rage that was directed at African-Americans in response to that over decades and centuries. You know, and until I read One Person, No Vote, I thought I had a pretty decent understanding of the history of voter suppression. But I didn't, not truly. You know, although voter suppression has mainly targeted African-Americans, it's also hit other people of color and even white Americans. You know, this book takes you through every corner of voter suppression throughout the country's history. And it's beyond Selma, it's beyond the Voting Rights Act, and it's been going on since the 15th Amendment and it has not slowed down. I have to warn you in advance, Carol Anderson and I in this conversation, we get a bit emotional and heated and, and passionate about it because it's something that we're both really passionate about. You know, and I don't usually endorse books this strongly, but in this case, I really urge you to get your hands on a copy of this book. You will never think about your voting rights the same way again. So here's my conversation with Professor Carol Anderson. Carol Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm so excited to read your new book. I read your first one, White Rage, and you're the perfect person to follow up with this with this book, One Person, No Vote. And I mean, you really are the perfect person to write this. Thank you. Um, and in fact, this book emerged out of White Rage from the um, when I was going around the nation giving talks on White Rage. Uh, when I would get to the point on voter suppression and how it worked, you know, particularly after we saw it after Obama's election, I would get these questions um, in the audience, uh, things like, but I don't understand. How hard is it to get an ID? You need an ID to check out a library book. It would just seem that in order to protect the integrity of the ballot box, that asking for an ID is not too much. I mean, and that's part of the way, as, you know, as I talked about in White Rage, how White Rage works. It, it looks reasonable. It is cloaked in these wonderful legalities, but underneath it is a system designed to destroy, dismantle, corrode, erode African-Americans' basic civil rights. Right. And one of the things I kept thinking as I was reading through your book, I was thinking that, you know, with all of this punditry and all of this analysis, especially after the 2016 election, everybody wants to analyze what happened. You know, why was the voter turnout lower for, you know, the black community? And you can't really do any analysis of anything that's happening in the black community without looking at this history of voter suppression. You just can't see anything because, you know, without full equality at the voting box, we can't vote for a better economic policy. Right. Or better, you know, reproductive justice. We can't vote in those things. Amen. OK, so I guess we're, we're done here because you have just <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> because this is really, you know, this is what I do in one person, no vote, is that I, I start off in the 
you know, with the 2016 election, going through how the pundits were like, wow, look at the lower black voter turnout. It really shows that, you know, African-Americans just weren't feeling Hillary. They weren't energized by her. She just doesn't have the charisma, the magic of Obama, you know, and besides, you know, she is a little corrupt. I mean, you'd get this over and over and over. And and I'm like screaming. It feels like into the wind. Um, because what they missed was that this was the first federal election, presidential election in 50 years since the Voting Rights Act. So this was the first time we did not have the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And without that protection, what we saw was voter suppression working its horrific, pernicious, evil doings in Wisconsin in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, in Texas, in Florida. And what happened then was that the black voter turnout was 7% lower in this election than it was in 2012. But without understanding that history of voter suppression, the history that required the Voting Rights Act in the first place, then we miss everything that is going on here. Right. And it's really hard to counter that message when you have the media repeating it over and over again. I, I remember seeing a piece in that came out of Milwaukee where Governor Scott Walker had done a lot with massive voter suppression in Milwaukee because Milwaukee, I think, is something like 40 percent African-American and accounts for 70 percent of the black population in the state. And what we know is that African-Americans overwhelmingly vote for the Democratic candidate, uh, not the Republican one, because of the Republican policies that are so anti-Black. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you suppress 70% of your Black population, there's a pretty good chance you can get the Republicans to carry the state. And that's what happened. But after the election, I saw a piece where they asked some, some black people in Milwaukee, why didn't you vote? And they were like, uh, you know, I just wasn't feeling Hillary. And you're going, uh, okay, you just weren't feeling Hillary. Uh, but the story is so much more than that. Because what the research also shows is that what voter suppression does is that it not only depresses the willingness to go vote, the ability to vote, but it begins to depress the sense that your vote matters. And when you begin to get people to buy into the, 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 the narrative that it doesn't matter how they vote or they don't want us to vote, so I can't vote. And, and, and that then not only spreads to that individual, but it spreads to the family and to the larger community as well. So it, it loops back on itself so that massive voter suppression. So when you've got people who are working class folk who are trying to vote on a Tuesday and trying to get to work or who are just getting off work and trying to vote, but get home to get some food on the table for the kids. Right. 
And, right. and they're running into polling places that are closed, polling places that have been moved, polling places that don't have equipment that works, or they're running into poll workers who don't have the latest information on the court ruling about what kinds of ID are absolutely acceptable. So people are thinking, I don't have this ID. And I know they, they say you got to have that one. So it doesn't matter. You know, all of those things feed in and loop on into each other. And once they have done that, what happens is that the research is also clear, is that once you have depressed the vote in one election or so, that breaking the habit of not voting is a hard one to break. And so that's where we are right now. So we've got these battles going on in these states to, to, you know, enormous court battles to end voter suppression, to end voter ID, to end voter roll purges. But we're also doing the, the kind of work that is about reframing the narrative about the importance of your vote and that every vote counts, that you count that your issues are on the table, schooling, quality education on the table, access to quality health care on the table, criminal justice reform on the table, tax policy that is not so regressive that you can't, you know, no matter how hard you work, you still can't get ahead. All of those are on the table. And so You're seeing incredible work being done, not only on the kinds of legal components of of trying to dismantle voter suppression, but also the kinds of social cultural components that have happened because of voter suppression. That work is being done as well. You know, that's such an important point, because I think that's something that people overlook. You know, I think a lot of people who analyze, you know, voter suppression, they think, well, we just need to restore the laws and then things will be fine. But that psychological effect is really important because what the message that it sends is that, you know, voting is not for us. It's for people who can take the afternoon off at work and, you know, go during the week. It's for people who have, you know, voting polls open in their neighborhoods where they can just easily go in and vote. It's not for me. Right, right. And all of this is by design. I mean, that is, I mean, one of the things that I really begin to lay out in One Person No Vote is how systematic this is. So for instance, something as, as, as heinous, that's what I'll call it, uh, as moving a polling um, station. What the research shows is that for every half mile that a polling station is moved from um, a black neighborhood, that the black voter turnout decreases by a certain percentage. So for every half mile that you move it, it goes down and down and down. So one of the things that they attempted here in Georgia, in Sparta, I believe it was, is they actually moved the polling station for the black precinct 17 miles away. Wow. Yeah. So it wasn't about popping into your neighborhood. It it was about getting into a car and driving 17 miles to be able to vote. Now, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and what happened then was civil society hopped in. Um, you know, I think it was the ACLU, maybe, and the NAACP, maybe the LDF. I can't remember which ones, but some constellation of those groups and fought like the Dickens to remove what the election officials were trying to do. But think about the level of vigilance you have to have 
about that. So just moving a polling station. And one of the things that happened after the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court. And those pre-clearance states, the states that used to have to run all of their changes to the voting laws by the Department of Justice and get the okay before they implemented them. After the Voting Rights Act was gutted in the Shelby County v. Holder decision, for the 2016 election, there were 868 fewer polling stations in those pre-clearance jurisdictions. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, this isn't the first time. Obviously, this isn't the first time that that something like that's happened. But another thing that that I got out of reading One Person No Vote was the the longevity of this effort. Right. You know, after the 15th Amendment, after the 15th, (laughs) I, I just what I realized from reading it is that, you know, there was never a clear beginning to voter suppression. It has always been with us. It's been 150 years nearly. (laughs) Yes. And that's, I I love, that's why I love being a historian, um, because it's really easy in the moment that we're in right now to see this as a just now moment, right? That Trump is an aberration, that voter suppression is an aberration, that after the Voting Rights Act, we overcame and all was good. And then, ooh, bad things happened in 2016. No. By looking at this history, you see, as you said, it is this ongoing struggle. Uh, What they say, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. It has required eternal vigilance. And one of the things that I really lay out is how with the Mississippi plan of 1890, and that was um, 1890 is, is like the beginning of Jim Crow. And that's when the states are figuring out how do we disfranchise this black population? How do we keep black people from having the right to vote when the 15th Amendment says they have the right to vote? And they developed a series of, of obstacles to the ballot box that didn't say we don't want black people to vote. But what it did was to look at the societally imposed characteristics of that black population and then made those characteristics the test to be able to vote. So you underfund schools. You've got a Jim Crow school system. You significantly underfund black schools. The average was like 252%. In Mississippi, the average was over 700%. And then you require a literacy test. And the literacy test, you know, it isn't see, dick, run, run, dick, run. Instead, it is a segment of the Constitution, either of the state or of the U.S. Constitution that the person is supposed to be able to read and then interpret to the liking of the registrar. Now, if you have a Jim Crow education, and in many of these these states, there weren't high schools for African Americans. Not until the like nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties. So you're asking people that you have systematically made sure were not educated to be able to read and translate a document to be able to actually do constitutional law. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you read my mind because I was going to ask you about the Mississippi plan of 1890. And, you know, the, <laughs> one of the one of the interesting things about that section of your book is that it was so successful that Virginia was really impressed. 
Yes. And you have this character um, from Virginia, Carter Glass, right? Yes. And, and this yes. quote from your book, he said something to the effect of, you know, we're going to eliminate the darkie as a political mm-hmm. factor in less than five years. Yes. And that's what they did. That is exactly what they did. And, re- and remember that part of the quote where somebody says, well, are you going to do it by fraud or are you going to do it by discrimination? He said, by fraud? No. By discrimination? Absolutely. I, and, and it's almost like being in the, a, a subsequent meeting in Florida when they were, and this is in the 21st century, yeah, when, yeah. right, right, mm-hmm. when they're figuring out how to stop African Americans from coming to the polls using early voting. And one of the things they did where they looked and they said, "Okay, we see that African-Americans are using this souls to the polls piece where they're coming in after church. Now, remember, these are supposed to be these God fearing folk who really want Christians all around them and at the ballot box, but they don't want black Christians. Um, (laughs) And so the the, the irony in all of this is just uh, And so one of the things that they did was to, in Florida, was to eliminate the Sunday right before Election Day, because they knew from the data that that was one of the days, the big days that African-Americans used to vote early. So it's that same by fraud. No, by discrimination. Yes, definitely. But using that discrimination where they don't have to say we don't want black people to vote. But again, it's by using the kinds of data, the kinds of characteristics that the African-American community has, and then modeling the legislation to go right after them. Right. So a few things there. Nothing has changed, right, in relation to that. <laughs> Nothing's changed because, you know, with the literacy test, the, the system was set up, like you said, for education. You know, they didn't fund education for the black community, so they couldn't pass literacy tests. So they found these ways that would make it harder for them to vote. And the second thing I wanted to mention is that people should understand the success that those efforts had. So just looking at what happened after the Mississippi plan and what happened around that time in 1896, one of the the numbers that you cite is that in Louisiana alone, originally there were 130,000 African-Americans who were registered to vote in 1896. By 1904, there were a little over 1,300. That's how effective it was. Yes, I, it, Devastating. Um, By the time the U.S. is fighting the Nazis, so we're in the 1940s, right? Yeah. It's a combination of the poll tax, which really preys on the poverty that African-Americans had and the literacy test. That combination had led to only 3% of age eligible African-Americans being registered to vote in the South. So you take election day terrorism, which was real, and then you combine that with the poll tax and the literacy test. So in the South, where the majority of African-Americans lived, only 3% were registered to vote when the U.S. is fighting Nazis. Right. Right. So, you wow. know, right. Taking us to, you know, mid-century, right around, you know, mm-hmm. World War Two. You know, what a lot of people don't take into account is that it wasn't just, you know, voter suppression, which was bad enough. It wasn't just that people went to the polls to try to register and they were turned away. There was actually violence. And there's a story in your book about Maceo Snipes, a veteran who fought in World War Two. Can you can you tell us about that story? Oh, yes. I mean, that story is is heartbreaking. And um 
And I've got to I've got, I've got to give a, a shout out to my colleague Hank Klibanoff, whose class Civil Rights Cold Cases really helped uncover that Maceo Snipes story. So Maceo Snipes was a black veteran, a World War II veteran. And in 1946, he's home in in Georgia. And the white primary, which was another uh, method of voter suppression, had been found unconstitutional in 1944. So Maceo Snipes is ready to vote. But there is an election going on in Georgia in 1946 that is as rabidly racist as it could possibly be. The man who is running for governor, Eugene Talmadge, has basically sent the word out to white Georgians that these black folks are uppity. They came back from the war um, and didn't know their place. And it's time for us to put them back in their place. And that place is not the voting booth. And and so he is basically calling for violence against black people who dare to vote. And Maceo Snipes goes to vote in the Georgia primary. And there's a sign there in Taylor County where he was that said the first Negro who votes, that will be the last time he will ever vote. You know, that'll be basically it's going to be you vote, you die was the the essential message of, of that. But Maceo Snipes is like, I fought in World War Two. I fought against Nazis. I fought for human rights. I have a right to vote. I am an American citizen. And he voted. He was the only black person who voted in Taylor County. A few days later, four white men showed up at his door, at his home, and knocked on it and asked him to step outside on the porch. And he's like, okay, yeah, what's up? And they pulled up their guns and started firing. It was a firing squad. Maceo Snipes went down. The men just put their guns away and walked away as if they had not just slaughtered a black man, a black veteran. Snipes' mother runs out the door. She sees her son full of bullet holes, crumpled on the porch. And he's a big man. And so, but she has mother love. She picks him up and there's no ambulance service for black people. Uh, there's not a black hospital, but she basically drags him to the hospital, which is basically a whites only hospital. And they're looking at this black man full of bullet holes and they don't care that this is a human being. They don't care that this is a veteran. And we're at that point now in American history where veterans are getting special citizenship status, right? None of that matters. He is basically put into a room the size of a closet and left there for hours and hours to just bleed out. It took him two days to die. Imagine the agony. But that sent the signal. You vote, you die. Wow. And nothing happened to the people who did the killing. Let's be real clear about this. Everybody knows who did it and nothing happened to them. There was no justice for Maceo Snipes. I'm speechless. I mean, yeah. I mean, and if people think that that does not reverberate. (laughs) Even if you don't know the story, just the the, just the psychological energy that that doesn't reverberate to today. Exactly. I mean, it, it is. We know it in terms of when we talk about there was a lynching. We don't know the particulars of lynchings. 
But we know that black people who get out of their place will be killed, have the very real possibility of being killed. And and this is the key piece as well, and that there is no recourse in the justice system to find justice for them. Instead, the whites who do the killing walk around as if nothing had happened. And it's sometimes in their communities, they are hailed as heroes. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And when you think about it, the the Voting Rights Act itself emerged out of decades of violence, but particularly that violent scene first on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where nonviolent protesters led by Hosea Williams and John Lewis are crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge as part of a symbolic carrying of Jimmy Lee Jackson's casket because he was gunned down by Alabama cops for defending his mother against a beating during a voting rights protest. And so they're symbolically carrying his casket from Selma to Montgomery to basically put it on the doorstep of Governor George Wallace. As they crossed the bridge, they didn't even get too far across the bridge. Alabama State Patrol, as well as Sheriff Jim Clark and his deputies, then basically bum rushed the nonviolent protesters tear gas going off. They're being whipped with whips wrapped in barbed wire, being trampled by horses. That scene played out on, on, you know, the the television cameras are there. ABC, that evening, ABC cut into its movie of the week, Judgment at Nuremberg, to show, wow, yes, to show the footage from Bloody Sunday, that, that, that hell that happened on Edmund Pettus Bridge. Then you have a wave of, of allies coming into Selma to do the next march. Um, it is held up by a federal court order. In that moment where it's held up, some white Alabamians were so mad that there were actually not just black folk there, but white folk there who actually believed that black people had the right to vote. And so they went after a group of ministers and started beating them. And one of them was Reverend James Reeb. So imagine the the hatred you have to have to beat an unarmed minister to death, to crack his skull wide open. It was that moment where Lyndon Johnson just said, "Okay, he doggone enough already. It is clear we don't have the protections that we need. We have tried and tried and tried over and over. And that precious right to vote is not protected. We're getting ready to put some federal protection behind the right to vote. And that's what the Voting Rights Act did. Yeah. And I just want to point out, so we're at the Voting Rights Act, you know, 19, 1965. Mm-hmm. We're about, what, 75 years? <laughs> We're in living memory, okay? <laughs> right, right, right. You're well, but, but still, it's seventy-five years. That's not, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like seventy-five years, 
And we're just there at Selma. This is still happening <laughs> right. after the 15th Amendment. Like there has been enough time. Yes. Yes. And and this is so and one of the you know, when you're looking at the data, um, there's some great data from um, I think it's Edmund. Um, I'm blanking on the name um, and it'll come to me later. <laughs> but out of the <laughs> DOJ's files that actually show that in certain Alabama counties, those black belt counties, that the percentages of African-Americans who are registered to vote was absolutely abysmal. And in some counties like Lowndes County, it was zero percent, you know, zero yeah. percent of African-Americans in a in a county that has a sizable number of African-Americans. Zero. Also in Lowndes County, the data show that over 100 percent of whites were registered to vote. So how do you get more than 100 percent of whites registered to vote and zero percent right. of. Right. So this is in the early 1960s. I mean, so this is what's going on in this moment. And it was like the 15th Amendment never happened. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I think people have the impression that, you know, after the Voting Rights Act, and between the Voting Rights Act and between Shelby County versus Holder, everything was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, is, am I wrong about that? Do people people really do believe that? I mean, it's part of the you know it's one of the things, and I'm going to switch back to white rage for a minute. One yeah. of the things that you know I laid out in white rage was that one of the most powerful narratives coming out of the civil rights movement was that the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 handled everything. Uh, racial discrimination and oppression was now over. Um, it's part of what I, what I say in my class to folks who get the soundbite history of the civil rights movement. Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, he had a dream, and we all overcame. You know, so, so, you know, and that becomes our kind of soundbite history. It is what the, 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 the little visual montages that we see for Martin Luther King Day, right? Is that after that, it was all fine. Except that's a lie. Uh, It really took an engaged, invigorated federal government with a fully committed Supreme Court to put some heft behind these laws to crack open the doors. And so what that means then is if you if you can find a way to. If this is a word, de-invigorate yeah. <laughs> the, the Department of Justice, if you can find a way to, and they did, to switch that Supreme Court from one that believed that people had inherent rights to one as uh, William Rehnquist and John Roberts believe that you give minorities rights, you're in a new day. And that's where we are. So it was like the year after the Voting Rights Act. In 1966, South Carolina sued, saying that the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional, saying that one, the the federal government had basically trampled upon states' rights, that it had overstretched. What it was doing was unconstitutional because the federal government did not have that authority. And also saying, and South Carolina was also ticked because South Carolina was still trying to use the literacy test which had been uh, banned by the Voting Rights Act. 
and uh, had put the federal government had put federal electors at the polls to ensure that South Carolina was not using the literacy test. It's like, man, what you doing? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, that's my, my court ease. Um, so, and I love the decision by the Warren court. They're like, no, this is dealing with that pernicious evil that has systematically stopped a segment of our population from voting, despite the 15th Amendment. The Voting Rights Act is constitutional. And and South Carolina was like, dang. But (laughs) but as I say, you know, it really is all of these cases are laying the groundwork for what John Roberts would pull upon for the Shelby County v. Holder decision. And, you know, and then there was where Mississippi and Virginia then tried to say, okay, we can't do a full frontal assault on the Voting Rights Act, but let's see if we can do an end run around it and get the Voting Rights Act really limited to like the big, nasty, big, ugly things. No poll tax. Great, because now we've got a constitutional amendment. No literacy test. But maybe drawing our own different kinds of boundaries or changing the way that people have to do uh, write-in ballots, that's really not worthy of having to get preclearance. And so you can see in that they're trying to then find ways to tinker with voting rights that can still keep African-Americans disfranchised. But just the way they, the Mississippi plan figured out how to do it on this side of the 15th Amendment, now Virginia and Mississippi were trying to figure out how do we do it on this side of the Voting Rights Act. And they tinkered and they tinkered and the Supreme Court came back. Again, this is the Warren Court going, no, Satan, not today. (laughs) (laughs) I need to stop that. Yeah. You know, they're like, you know, this deals not only with, you know, and, and again, the ruling was very clear. This deals not only with the kinds of big things, but also the subtle changes that have as its effect disfranchising populations. Yeah. And, 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 and you can see that, darn, but it doesn't mean that they stopped. Over and over, these states, these jurisdictions are pushing the boundaries, pushing the limits, seeing how much they can get away with. And each decision, each, each I don't know, um, as the Supreme Court changes, really begins to provide the fodder that John Roberts uses in his decision in Shelby County v. Holder to basically dismantle so much of the Voting Rights Act and its effectiveness. Yeah. So, you know, I want to I want to roll back a little bit because there are two really important things that happened before Shelby County versus Holder. Yeah. So one of them is and, and this is my favorite element of voter suppression. Right. It's my it's my favorite because it's just so so cynical voter fraud. Right. The claims of voter fraud. Right. And, you know, when those whispers started to happen. So the thing about that that's so interesting to me is the level of gaslighting. So you use cheating, you use cheating and deception to keep people from voting, and then you accuse them of cheating. 
You know, right. It's like being married to a crazy man, right? Did you ever? It's like it's like that movie Gaslighting, where Ingrid Bergman is there, and she thinks she is losing her mind because she sees the gaslight going down, and her husband's looking at her, going, "No, baby, that light is just fine. What, what are you seeing?" She knows there's yeah. a handkerchief in her purse, and all of a sudden it's not there, and he's like, "I love that baby, movie. do you have a handkerchief in your purse when you talk?" She's like, "I'm." I love that movie, right? <laughs> so you, you go to the poll, you try to vote. They say, oh, oh, your name isn't here. But then later you hear in the news that they're accusing your, your community of trying to cheat. Right. Uh, you know, so let's take the 2000 election. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yep. Please, please take it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so in that 2000 election, we, we've paid a lot of attention to uh, Florida because Florida was a hot mess. Um, what was happening there with a combination of Catherine Harris as secretary of state and Jeb Bush as governor, while his brother George W. is running as the Republican nominee for president? Um that's where the focus was. Hanging chads, purge voter rolls, um, having police officers stationed in the black neighborhood in Jacksonville in the only road coming into the precinct, the polling station. All I mean, right. just like, really? Really? Yeah. But St. Louis. Yeah, I, I, I remember that part in your mm. book. I was reading that. You know, and I, I just have to say, you know, before you go into that, <laughs> I remember that I voted in that election. And I remember, you know, just speaking of the hanging chads, just just in Florida, that whole thing. I remember the moment and you can yeah. give details yeah. about this, but I remember the moment when they decided to stop the recount. And, and I just felt sick. Mm. I felt sick because I knew not because, you know, Bush was going to win. I mean, that was bad enough, but I felt sick because the mask they took the mask off. Yes. They did they did not care. Yes. That it was so obviously unfair and so wrong. And I thought, where can we go if they don't care anymore? Right. I mean, when you look at it, this is where we are right now. And and this is also, you know, part of what I'm foreshadowing in this book. When I say that, you know, Trump and and all of the machinations that we're seeing right now, this didn't spring up like Athena out of Zeus's head. This stuff has been sown into the soil of this nation. And the rule of law is when we say it's the rule of law. In the recount, when the vote gets down to Bush's lead has been reduced to 137 votes. And the U.S. Supreme Court, and these are the originalists who don't believe in an activist court, yeah. all of a sudden get really active. <laughs> and look at Florida saying, you, you can stop counting now. No, stop counting. We are ordering you to stop counting. And it's really clear. The order to stop counting was to ensure that George W. Bush became president of the United States, regardless regardless of all of the machinations that had happened in polling at the time, regardless of what that recount just might show. And when you think about the kinds of voter suppression that they were doing in Florida, like with the voter roll purges, to have the vote that close, you know, that was a stolen election. Right. And the Supreme Court basically looked Americans in the eye and said, yeah, we stole it. What you going to do about it? Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, for people yeah. who may be too young, because there are a lot of people who, who may be too young to remember <laughs> that and didn't vote in that election. Can you just explain what happened? So there was a, a recount in Florida, and I think George Bush and Al Gore were within, I think, less than, what, 200 votes? 137 votes. Right. Yes. And because it was clear that the voting machines 
weren't working, what they called the hanging chads. So the machine was, you know, you there were these little holes. You were you moved the machine. It was supposed to punch a, a dot in like a three-hole punch, one right. of those old-fashioned machines. And on some of the machines, and then those holes were supposed to be run through a counter, and that would tabulate the vote. But what was happening is that some of the machines just made an indent but didn't make a hole. Some of the machines, the little dot didn't go all the way through, but only was hanging off of the paper. I mean, it was just messed up. And so it was going to require a hand recount. And so some of the larger counties and these larger counties also had significant minority populations. The recount is going on. Catherine Harris, who is the secretary of state, but who also led the Republicans for Bush in Florida. So she's not a disinterested party. Um, is issuing orders to the various election boards that are doing the recount. And her orders are tilted and tainted. So for Republican-led counties, she's providing really expansive rules about who they, you know, which ballots they can count. For counties that lean towards Democrats, she is providing really uh, constricted rules about who and what they can count. And even with all of that, in this counting, when the recounts, when they gets down statewide, that there is only, Bush started out with over a thousand point lead, a thousand vote lead. Um, when it gets down to only 137 vote lead, that's when the U.S. Supreme Court said, basically, we've seen enough. You know, so as long as we can call this thing when he's ahead, (laughs) it doesn't look like we really stole this election. But they did. But they really did. Um, And from that, let me move then into the St. Louis story. Right. Yes, please. Because those two really fused together. So there was so much attention on Florida. But what was happening in St. Louis, Missouri, would help set the framework for this language of voter fraud that we're hearing so persistently and consistently today. The St. Louis Board of Election had basically illegally removed over 49,000 names from the voter rolls, but didn't tell the people. (laughs) that they had removed their name. You know, it's a little thing, but it's a big thing, right? right. And so folks are coming to vote and finding out that their names aren't on the voter rolls. And they're like, but I'm registered to vote. I voted last time. Why why, why isn't my name there? They're like, well, I I don't know. And they're like, well, you know, you need to go ask somebody. (laughs) And And so as the poll workers are calling down to the board of elections downtown, the lines are jammed. The lines are busy. They can't get through. And, you know, and you've got if you've got and you do have a working class community, you don't have time to spend Hours upon hours, which on something that should be, it's designed to frustrate you. But people were going then down to the board of elections to get their, you know, to get this mess up fixed so that they could go vote. They knew this was an important election. And, and the board of elections, their records were such a hot mess that they couldn't figure it out. And it was taking hours so much so that the clock was ticking on the time when the polls were getting ready to close. So the Democrats seeing this and they 
get a judge, you know, who sees the illegal purges, who sees the bureaucratic malfeasance and says, "Mm -mm, this is this is wrong and allows the polls to stay open for three additional hours so that the people who have been standing at the board of election all day can actually go vote, which they had set out to do earlier. Within 45 minutes, the Republicans had managed to get another judge to close the polls. And the language that they used was that, you know, keeping the polls open is the biggest fraud. And they're trying to perpetrate this voter fraud on such a massive scale. And they're trying to steal an election. And so, you know, you begin to think about this. In America, there is this cognitive linkage of urban crime black. And then you put fraud stealing on there and it seems logical. But what has happened is in fact, is that the folks who were abiding by the law got screwed over royally because the doors closed on over a thousand people waiting in line to vote in that November cold weather. What happens is that people go, they wait in line to vote. They're told their names aren't there. They're then sent to another office and are expected to come back. Yes. <laughs> yes. And again, this is a Tuesday. So this isn't like you're blowing up your weekend. You're blowing up your work day. Yeah. Yeah. So what Kit Bond and Kit Bond is a U.S. senator from Missouri and, and he's a Republican. And when the court had ruled to keep the polls open for three hours, what he and Mark Thor Hearn were arguing on the opposite side to get the polls closed, which they did, was that, here it is, he alleged that the attempt to keep the polls open, quote, was a brazen, shocking, astonishing, and stunning effort to commit voter fraud with dead people registering and voting from the grave, fake names and phony addresses proliferating across the nation's voter rolls, dogs registering, and people signing up to vote from vacant lots, unquote. This was, he continued, quote, a major criminal enterprise designed to defraud voters, unquote. It's there. <laughs> and he just made that up. Yes. Because there yes. was no voter. Yeah. Just made it all up. I, and when, and this is, this is also part of the pernicious component of this, because that election was such a hot mess and you had people questioning, you know, one of the things is that the U.S. likes to do the, you know, we are the world's greatest democracy and we send people over to troubled elections to <laughs> monitor uh, because we know how it's done. And the 2000 election was like, no, y'all can't even count. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so and so that kind of shock to the American sense of democratic superiority was real. The ability to not even handle a basic election was real. And so Congress moved to to try to right the wrongs that had happened there. But one of the things is that they put Senator Kit Bond in charge of helping to move the bill, the Help America Vote Act, through Congress. Bond insisted as the Help America Vote Act is going through, and it was based a lot on the work done with a, a presidential commission led by Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. And it helped create an election assistant commission. It 
put in place ways to modernize voting equipment. And it also created a mechanism for people to register complaints about voting irregularities that were happening at the polls. And all of this was to deal with what was actually happening on the ground. But in the era of truthiness, <laughs> and truth is what I say it is, um, Kit Bond also insisted that rampant voter fraud was real when it wasn't. So we get this equivalency in federal law between the reality of voter suppression and the myth of voter fraud. And in order to get this bill through, Kit Bond insisted on having voter IDs as part of federal law to ensure that people were who they said they were. Now, begin to think about that. Now we have federal law basically encoding, providing legitimacy to the lie of voter fraud. And that lie took hold. And that's the lie that the Republicans ran with in order to figure out how do we disfranchise populations that we know aren't going to vote for us because our policies are so horrific. Our policies are anti-Black, anti-immigrant, anti-worker, anti-women. Our policies are about re-encoding, re-inscribing a white male patriarchal wealthy oligarchy and, and sitting on top of that and calling it democracy. And I know that might sound harsh, but that's what they do. And, and because they have been playing so much to their base, that their policies became more and more rigid over time after the 68 um, election with the Southern strategy, playing more and more to the base of, of all of these antis yeah. that made it impossible for the party to reform, the party to open up and become more inclusive in more than just words only, but in terms of actions. And yeah. so what they decided to do was to figure out how do we go after those populations that we know aren't going to vote for us? And how do we do it in a way that allows us to stay on this side of both the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act? Because by this time, it's like 2005. And that way to do it was to hammer home the issue of rampant voter fraud and to position themselves as the protector of democracy, as those who are fighting hard to protect the integrity of the ballot box, when in fact they were doing just the opposite. They were undermining democracy and they were skewing and skewering the ballot box. How do you do that? The Help America Vote Act had an expansive list of IDs from utility bill statements, bank statements, employment IDs, a whole range of IDs that you could use to prove who you were. But once you've got that in there about voter IDs, you can begin to tinker with that. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, it just for, well, first of all, I want to go back to the voter fraud, but I just want to comment on a point that you made about their decision to go completely in that direction and just keep on with the voter suppression. Nothing is keeping Republicans from 
adopting broad, you know, voter inclusion laws. Like, you know, they, they could just go in that direction if they wanted to. They could say, you know, we want everyone to vote and we've got policies to support these marginalized groups. But instead... <laughs> The, the policies come first and they say, well, we know that groups won't like these policies. So we're just going to keep them from voting, which just makes no sense to me. No sense whatsoever. None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. And and what also becomes clear, I mean, it's like as we're looking at the data. And this is why what they're doing is so frightening for American democracy is that the GOP base is shrinking. So their number of voters are, in fact, declining and the rest of Americans are out here. And you would think that you would get a policy that would try to figure a series of policies that would try to figure out how to be more inclusive. But instead, they went in the opposite direction. This is how you end up getting the presidential nominee for the Republican Party being endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. This is how this happens, by making a conscious decision to craft policies that are as extremist and as draconian as they can be, and and not to figure out, as a political party, how do we expand our outreach? You see that in, so I mean, take a minute, Um, George W. Bush looked up and and. He realized that what he only got nine percent of the black vote, which means like ninety-one percent voted against him. Um, <laughs> but but he realized that he received thirty-five percent of the Hispanic vote, and he said, and and the nation was really polarized by that election. As, as you're you know you're talking about, people were looking up, going, "Did you just see that mess?" Um, really polarized, and and he recognized how polarized it was. And so one of the things that he set out to do was to have an outreach to Hispanic voters by being much more flexible in terms of immigration law. Well, that backfired with the base big time. Right. But I'm saying this is when you double down. Because your base is only so big. And there's language that some Republicans use that I find highly offensive, which is that black people are on the Democratic plantation, right? Yeah. Yes. yes yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a right? whole other. Ooh. Yeah. That we could we could do a whole episode on that. Right. And that, that's that's in the in the category of gaslighting. Right. That's hello. That's yeah. Hello. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And and the Republicans have not provided any depth of policy that would make them competitive in a broader election to a broader constituency. So it's not about being on some plantation. And even the language of plantation is so racist. It is not even a dog whistle. It is basically saying black folks are enslaved and they're just looking up at their massa, the Democratic Party, and and just figuring out, I'll do whatever you want, massa. That also shows a lack of understanding about the massive resistance that the enslaved had against the oppressive conditions in slavery. So you get a Republican Party that is calcifying. And what they decide to do is to double down on voter suppression. We see it in the first voter ID law came out of Indiana. 
And in that lie of voter fraud, that's how they couched it. So Secretary of State Todd Rakita out of Indiana, who's a Republican, as, he, as he's looking back on it, he says, quote, in 2001 and 2002, election integrity was a huge issue. The problem was that people were losing confidence in the system. There was a fear of votes being stolen, even <laughs> if the fear didn't pan out to be true. The fear was still there, unquote. Now, this is a fear that the enormous propaganda machine of the GOP had put out there through a series of congressional hearings, through a series of newspaper op-eds and, and television appearances where they just kept saying voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud, and also voter fraud. This voter fraud isn't coming out of these nice, wonderful suburbs. They're coming out of the cities, <laughs> uh, right? And out of these urban areas, you yeah. know, barely coded language, black folks stealing the elections. Right. And so they're listing these hotbeds of voter fraud, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Cleveland. I mean, that sort of thing. And folks are like, mm, voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. <laughs> and so you have then Todd Rakita talking about people were losing confidence, but they and they were fearing that the votes were being stolen, even if the fear didn't pan out to be true. That fear was still there. So this had been based on the perception that the carefully crafted, cultivated and stoked by the GOP lie that state governments now had a mandate to wrestle this virtually non-existent voter impersonation fraud to the ground. And that's what Indiana did as it passed a law requiring ID. And it had a limited range of ID. So it's beginning to hack away at the Help America Vote Act anyway. And what we know, for instance, a driver's license, yeah. a larger percentage of African-Americans do not have a driver's license. And that's because cars are expensive. Yeah. You've got the note. You've got the insurance. You've got the gasoline, you've got the maintenance, and you've got to pay for parking if you're living in the city. And if you're driving in the city somewhere, usually there's a parking fee. Cars are expensive. And the income disparity between whites and blacks in Indiana was in the double digits. So you had a larger percentage of African-Americans who did not have a driver's license. The NAACP and the ACLU sued. In this court case, it Supreme Court case, it was mind boggling. The U.S. Supreme Court looked and said, really, you know, this law really only goes after voter impersonation fraud. And Indiana has no documented cases of voter impersonation fraud. That should have been it. Yeah. They've got this law that has these, these strictures in there that can clearly impose a burden upon black voters. And the court couldn't find any cases of voter impersonation fraud. And it didn't care. It didn't care. And they ruled that the law was constitutional. Right. Wasn't there some some quote there where they found some case in 1896? <laughs> no, seriously, wasn't there a case where they, they use that as an example? Like we couldn't find any recent examples of voter fraud, but there was this one case right. in 1896. Right. It was the 1868. Okay. <laughs> right? Even worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So you've got the justice, John Paul Stevens, quoting 
a case from 1868 in New York with Boss Tweed and that rigging of that election. And then he also then goes into that mess in St. Louis, quoting the stuff that Kit Bond had talked about. People voting from vacant lots, dead people on the rolls. All of those had been debunked by the time this case comes through. But the U.S. Supreme Court said voter ID protecting the integrity of the ballot box. The state has a vested interest in that, and that supersedes any kind of supposed burdens on the voters. Wow. Wow. Right. It's so funny because not only did he go into a different century, for an example, he wasn't even in the right state. I remember being a child and thinking that the Supreme Court was this body of wisdom, unaffected by the tides of the day but really looking clinically at the law to ensure that justice was done. And then I grew up. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So so I just want to go move forward to 2008, the election of Obama, because that's when people really lost their minds. <laughs> because Obama brought in 15 million new voters, most of whom were people of color. Right. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that just sent a panic. I mean, we know what the panic was. Right. But especially around the voter ID laws. So in 2011 and 2012, there were 180 bills related to restricting voting and with voter ID laws in 41 states. Yes. Isn't that something? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and when you looked at those laws, they were targeted right at the coalition of voters that had put a black man in the White House. They were targeted. I mean, this is one of the things, for instance, that doesn't get talked about. They were targeted at Asian Americans. You know, we talk about the targeting of black folk. We talk about the targeting of Latinos, but we don't talk about the targeting of Asian Americans and what they bring to the voting box. And and so one of the key ways that Asian Americans have been targeted has been through voter roll purges. Yeah. You know, and that's why I said people of color, because I know that those 15 million new voters, they weren't all black voters. They were Asian voters. There were Latino voters and black voters. Yes. I mean, they were all going for Obama. They saw this and they just so what they did, they systematically went through and found ways to just disenfranchise all of those voters. When again, I go back to my original point, you could just create policies that they like. Wow. It's like that V8 commercial where you pop yourself in the head. Wow, I could have had a V8. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? And thinking about, and this is the thing, is that what these voters want are the kinds of policies that make America stronger. The kinds of policies that are talking about a clean environment, uh, the kinds of policies that are talking about strong schools, good education for all students. Wow. Could you imagine if we really had a truly educated population? Right. Talk about being able to really compete in a knowledge-based, technology-driven economy. Right. Imagine if the kinds of bankruptcies that we had that were due to medical bills that just wiped people out. So they're sick and they're broke. Imagine if we don't have that. 
Yeah. I mean, so when we're thinking about policies, I mean, so this isn't just this kind of where they try to talk about identity politics, but but this is really talking about creating a vibrant, strong fabric that supports our people, the people who live in the United States to make the United States vibrant and strong and healthy and how that can become so anathema to a party, a major party, is... Yeah. You know, I'm so glad that you brought up the example of Asian Americans and Latino Americans, because I want to go back to something that you said earlier in the book, you know, around the 15th Amendment, because, you know, people need to care about voter suppression and voting rights, you know, just because it's just wrong. Voter suppression is just wrong. However... (laughs) People tend to support policies that have their best interests in mind. Like that's just the way human nature works, right? Um, You know, we'd like people to just care just because they care, but everybody isn't like that, right? So, but what people should know that it isn't just Black people that are affected by voter suppression, right? As you've just just mentioned. So back after the 15th Amendment, you had some politicians saying that they didn't want, like some white Americans were affected by voter suppression. They said they didn't want anybody who wasn't intelligent. It didn't matter what race they were. So the point is, is that this kind of patriarchal nature to protecting votes, if you're not intelligent enough or you're not the right color, you're not the right race, if it's happening to your brother today, it can happen to you. Oh, tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. So yes, so this was right after the Mississippi plan of 1890. And this one Mississippi politician said, you know, the state had to, quote, disfranchise the ignorant and vicious white, unquote, too, so that the electorate was, quote, confined to those and to those alone who are qualified by intelligence and character for the proper and patriotic exercise of this great franchise, unquote. So poor whites were getting massively disfranchised as well. And later on, 21st century politicians who are also talking about trying to find ways to limit the vote. Iowa Congressman Steve King lamented the passing of, quote, of a time in American history when you had to be a male property owner in order to vote. Unquote. Florida Governor Rick Scott echoed that sentiment when he also proffered, quote, you used to have to be a property owner to vote, unquote. And Ann Coulter was even more forthright, quote, I just think it should be a little more difficult to vote. There's nothing unconstitutional about literacy test, unquote. Now, of course, she's wrong. There is something unconstitutional about literacy <laughs> test. <laughs> But think about saying that only those with property should be able to vote and begin to think about like right now, the kind of housing crisis that we're in when there are so many people who cannot afford to buy homes. Think about how that really, truly skews the electorate and, and the kinds of policies that emanate out of that kind of electorate. Yeah. I mean, they are basically signaling what they really want. And it is a piecemeal effect. It's, it's kind of like watching the current administration's policy on immigration. 
First, they they talked about all of those. Oh, and I hate that term. Illegals. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't have illegal people. No, <laughs> um, no, no, no. And 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 they made it seem like they were criminals. All oh, their Mexicans are rapists and they're criminals and they're thugs and they're thieving to the whatever. Yeah. You yeah. know, just the, the lies are just profound and deep. But you see this movement from this 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 kind of narrowed category to then DACA students, to then asylum seekers, and now those who are naturalized, to then going after immigrants who legally accessed public services to down deport them. It is that kind of gradual expansion of a debased category as they see it to then winnow away uh, an electorate that they don't want to get near them so that they can create this white male property owner <laughs> as the yeah. only folks who can vote. And some might say, well, Steve King, you know, he's an extremist. But you haven't heard him being denounced by the Republicans, have you? No. Okay. <laughs> no. And I know I said this before, and I'm kind of going back, but you know, people, when they make indictments of non-voters, Right. You know, there's this kind of judgmental tone like, you know, we need turnout to win the midterms. Right. And these non-voters, you just keep hearing this non-voters mm -hmm. as if they're doing something <laughs> terrible. I don't want to hear anyone else talk about non-voters without talking about it in this context. Thank you. The effort that has been taken to keep people from voting. Wow. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm <laughs> hugging you through the podcast. <laughs> That's how I felt reading the uh, so-called analysis after the election in 2016. It was so snide toward Hillary Clinton. And it was so, uh, well, you know, black folk just, you know, you know what it takes to get them out. <laughs> and it, it takes an Obama. She didn't have it. And so <laughs> black folks just stayed home. They just weren't feeling into it. As if you didn't have people who were trying to register to vote and being kicked back saying, no, that's not the right document. That's not the right document. We don't know who you are. That's not the right document. It's like, how many times can you go to the election board with your documents to be turned away? Or how many times can you go to the driver's license bureau? Sitting here in Georgia, I remember I was sitting here to get my driver's license and I saw a number of women who were turned away and couldn't get their driver's license because you know they had married or they had divorced. And so the paperwork on the birth certificate didn't match the paperwork of some other kind of paperwork. So the last name wasn't the same. Think about what that does to women. Yeah. Yeah. So when it's requiring that every piece of your name be exact and you marry or you divorce and say that you're in that kind of that space between when the time when you can get all of the new stuff with your new name on it. And you got yeah. an election coming and you got to register by X, Y, Z time. I, this is winnowing away of women, too. It just. Yeah. Woo. And you know what? People don't know this about me. And it's something that I didn't even I wasn't even conscious of myself. Mm -hmm. So I got married in 2010. Right. The midterms. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. And I never legally changed my name. And <gasps> I did that subconsciously. <gasps> wow. Because. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I could vote. Why did I do that? Why is it so ingrained in me that I can't make any change? Right. It was like your spider sense was tingling. 
And, yeah. and, and, you, and you knew that Doc Ock was somewhere nearby with those multi-tentacles trying to disfranchise you because you had the doggone audacity to fall in love and get married. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even give it a second thought. I just thought, well, you know, there's this is an election year. Well, I'm not going to make any changes. And I just moved on from it. Uh huh. Think about how the ways that these laws work from, like I said, moving the polling places under the guise of fiscal responsibility to Chris Kobach's cross check. Oof. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. So the way cross-check works, you know, we're talking about voter roll purges and your name matching exactly. The way cross-check works is it, it says we're out to catch people who are voting in more than one state, trying to skew an election, double voting. And so if you're registered in Kansas and you're also registered in Virginia, we're going to knock you off the rolls. And so what it says it does is it compares these databases across multiple states. And it compares on first name, middle name, last name, last four of your social security number and your date of birth. And so ostensibly, if James Francis Brown with one, two, three, four is the last four of the social security number born on January 1, you know, 1991. Um, if that person is registered, James Francis Brown is registered in Kansas and in Virginia, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. Except that's not the way cross-check works. Cross-check looks kind of, sort of at your first name, definitely at your last name, Many of the states don't use the last four of your social security number. And what happens then is that because you have an overemphasis on last names, it has an overcorrection or an over error problem on last names. The problem with that is that in the United States, 85 of the top 100 most common last names are last names that minorities have. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that if your last name is Washington, there's an 89% chance that you're African-American. If your last name is Garcia, if your last name is Hernandez, if your last name is Lee, if your last name is Young. And so what you get then is that whites are underrepresented by 8% on the purge list, while African-Americans are overrepresented by 45%. Wow. Asian Americans by 31% and Hispanics by 24%. There, there you go. Yeah. And so when you want to think through how to begin to, to purge an electorate to which your party has not been responsive and refuses to be responsive, that's a great way to do it. That's a way, that's an incredible way to shape the electorate for you and not shape the electorate for the United States of America. Wow. So does the resistance give you, um, does that encourage you at all? Oh, yeah. You know, like, as I, as I said, you know, I teach, you know, a lot of my classes, we go to the dark side. War crimes <laughs> and genocide, you're not looking at pretty things. Um, the civil rights movement, you're not looking at, at, at people being really nice to each other. I mean, we, we go dark and deep. But we also find these incredible rays of hope that become these sinews of strength. 
And that that is in the people who stand up saying, not on my watch. And that's what the resistance has done in this era. I, I just smile when I think about the folks who are just like, not today. Not today. So in the book, as you know, originally I, I knew I was going to have a resistance chapter. I knew that as I was mapping out this book, because it wasn't just about the ways that voter suppression has been rationalized and enacted and the horrific effects that it has had. But one of the ways that we were even able to document this is because people have been fighting these efforts all along. So you're able to read through the court cases. You're you're able to read through the, the biographies and the autobiographies. So I knew there was going to be a resistance chapter. And lo and doggone behold, didn't Roy Moore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Woo! I mean, you want to talk about. A man whose credentials are horrifying. Just the 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 strong allegations of <sighs> sexual assault against teenage girls, the homophobia, the racism, the archaic, reactionary, regressive. Have I missed any adjective yet? Um, <laughs> and, and, and he becomes the standard bearer for the Republican Party to stand as a candidate for the U.S. Senate. And then there's Doug Jones, who was the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. And then there's Alabama. And Alabama had deployed every method of voter suppression against its black population that I describe in the book. Gerrymandering to get folks to the point where you believe that your vote doesn't even count, so why even bother to go out? Moving polling stations, requiring a voter ID, and then constricting access to the ways, the manner to be able to get those IDs. You know, so the governor shuts down the departments of motor vehicles in the Black Belt counties and then barely reopens them, you know, a day a month here, two days a month there, that sort of thing. Massive voter roll purges. I mean, Alabama delivered felony disfranchisement. Alabama delivered. I think I, I start off with a line on that chapter. Nina Simone may have sung Mississippi Got Damn, but Alabama showed how it was done. And watching the way then that civil society organized, mobilized, drew upon the strengths of those local communities the value systems in those local communities, the determination to be free, the aspirations in those local communities, and looked at everything that Alabama had done and figured out how to either climb over the mountain, go around the mountain, go under the mountain, destroy the mountain, or go through the mountain. But they were going through that mountain. I just, wow. John Merrill, who is the Secretary of State, who believes that voting is a privilege, not a right. Uh, estimated that the voter turnout rate would be 25% in that special election. Actually, statewide, it turned out to be 40%. But in the Black Belt counties that had faced the full brunt of the worst that Alabama had to deliver in terms of voter suppression, that turnout rate was 45%. 
So they exceeded the state average while having to overcome more than anybody else had to do. That's the power of the resistance. And what I think that what this means, because we're going to get through this, we're going to have to fight like the Dickens to do it, is that we are going to have to envision the right to vote as not an obstacle course, but as a right. And and work on ways of dismantling all of that nastiness that has been put in the way of American citizens to access their basic right to vote. We have some states that are, are really at the forefront of this, like Oregon, who led off with automatic voter registration. What happened in Oregon? They already had a high voter turnout rate. It was even higher after automatic voter registration, but not just that. The electorate became more diverse after automatic voter registration. Places like California that have just been shaking, you know, their heads going, wow, you know, California had, I think, a voter turnout rate of like 42 percent. They're like, oh, this isn't good enough. We've got to do better. They implemented automatic voter registration, but they went a step further. And they said, we're also registering, pre-registering 16 and 17 year olds so who are in school. So when they turn 18, they are automatically registered to vote. Then you have places like, I think it was Minnesota, that said, I'm going to do you one better. And <laughs> I love this, right? <laughs> and, and when I think it was Minnesota said, okay, it's not just the Department of Motor Vehicles, because you know what? Not everybody drives. So when you come in contact, when our citizens come in contact with key agencies like the disability agency or, or like the, the benefits agency, that they too are automatically registered to vote. Again, the research is really clear on this. If you have a lot of voter registration obstacles and you don't have a force powerful enough that's there to overcome those obstacles, the voter registration percentage goes down. So you, you have these states who are figuring out how do we honor the franchise? How do we honor the right to vote for our citizens? And that, to me, is one of the key pieces that we're going to have to put in place when this horrible, horrible era is over. Right. I mean, from my perspective, just in my opinion, this needs to be priority number one, you know, when we take back the three branches, because everything else follows from this. When you expand the electorate, you can get people to vote for health care. You can get people to vote for, you know, everything that's to their benefit. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that, you know, when I was going through the research on this book and writing it was the perniciousness, for instance, of gerrymandering. And this speaks exactly to your point. You know, so the Constitution says every 10 years after the census, the legislative body is supposed to draw the new districts based on the, the population. So and it was to make sure that the districts reflected the changes that were happening in the United States in terms of population growth and where people were living. Well, folks started gaming the system. <laughs> and in Wisconsin, after the 2010 election, when the Republicans gained power, a few locked themselves basically in a hotel room for four months. I mean, of course they went out, but they, they stayed in that hotel room drawing and redrawing the district maps in Wisconsin. 
they drew 10 different maps because they were armed with high powered uh, computer programming, mapping programs that were able to like drill down like a Facebook Cambridge analytic to who lives where, what are their value systems? Does this street or does this household lean this way? Does it lean? And so you would get these crazy drawn maps. And the point of drawing these maps, as they made clear, was that they could get rid of the competitive districts, but that no matter how many votes the Republicans received, they would always have the majority of the seats in the state legislature. Now, let that sink in a moment. No matter how many votes, they would still run the thing. And after that first election in 2012 with the new maps, Democrats received 52% of the vote and garnered 39% of the seats. It was disproportionately less, significantly disproportionately less because of the ways that the districts were drawn. What that has also done, that kind of rigging of the system, rigging of the districts to create these super safe districts and to create uh, multiple Republican districts, is that it has added somewhere between 16 to 26 additional Republican seats in the U.S. Congress. And begin to think through how, like during the efforts to destroy the Affordable Care Act, how poll after poll was saying overwhelmingly Americans like the Affordable Care Act, wanted access to health insurance, like the protections of not being excluded because they had a pre-existing condition. And regardless, that Republican Congress was steamrolling ahead to destroy the Affordable Care Act. And so it's like, how do you reconcile these polls of an overwhelming majority of Americans saying, we really want this and having representatives saying, no, you're not going to get it and we're going to destroy this thing. And <laughs> wow. And and the same thing happens with DACA. The same thing happens with the Children's Health Insurance Program. And the same thing happens with the, the that horrific tax bill that went through. So the majority, overwhelming majority of Americans were opposed to this tax bill that transferred one point five trillion to the uber wealthy. And the tax bill went through. How is that possible? Gerrymandering. Right. Be because it creates these safe districts where your representatives no longer have to be responsive to the will of the voters. That's what voter suppression does to democracy. You know, I, I have to say this for a third time because, <laughs> you know, I know the whole thing about the gerrymandering and, you know, Project Red Map and all of the court cases, the Wisconsin court case that came out of that. Yes. Again, I just yes. have to say for the third time, that's a lot of work. When you could just change your policies, people want health care. People want immigration reform. People want all these things. Just change your policies. Why go through all of this? At this point, it just seems dumb. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. I, OK, say it for the folks in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we're all suffering because of this. Right. Oh. And I'm watching it. But sometimes I just have to sit back and just laugh and think like this is so, so much easier instead of just fighting the will of the people. Right. You know, I, I think about all of the effort and energy that went into figuring out how to screw over American citizens, how yeah. to screw over the people 
who live here, how to screw over immigrants who come to this country and are absolutely a vital component in this nation that that makes this nation richer, that makes this nation habitable, you know, that makes this nation a place where you want to be. All of the effort, and imagine if all of that effort had been put into, how do we make this even better? Wow. Yes. Yes. Look, which party can expand voting rights the fastest? Right. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, in, in White Rage, I have that last piece in the conclusion where I talk about imagine. You know, imagine if we had really honored the freedom, the labor and the citizenship rights of those who had been freed from slavery. Ooh, imagine if we had done that yeah. instead of what we did. And imagine if Brown had been implemented instead of jurisdiction after jurisdiction, school district after school district, figuring out how do we make sure that black children are not educated. Think about the, I don't even know what the figure would be, billions, trillions that we have squandered because we are trying to be as exclusive as possible. And that exclusivity is, in fact, destroying this nation. Wow. My note of hope is the power of the resistance. It is the power and that resistance, you know, so I I talk about the organizations like the NAACP, the ACLU, Vote Riders, Let America Vote. They're all so essential to bringing humanity to this nation. I, I talk about them doing the heavy lifting of democracy, but, you know, they're not doing it on their own. There are the folks who are volunteering, knocking on doors. There are the folks who are standing on the street corners with their signs, you know, saying, hey, engage in this democracy and let's take down this regime that is set out to destroy us and to poison our waters and to poison our airs and to basically poison our minds uh, with the hatred that they're spewing. You know, it's, it's regular folks who are out there envisioning what a vibrant nation and world can look like and doing their bit to make that happen. That's the resistance. And I think that also is why the Republicans are running scared, because they have backed themselves into a corner and they didn't have to. But they back themselves into a corner by playing to the most base, darkest, greediest side of humanity instead of playing to our better angels. Yeah. Well, Carol Anderson, I just have to say thank you so much. I Your work and your writing and your voice just means so much to me personally. And oh, I was I was just beside myself when I had the chance to talk to you. And I just want to thank you for, for writing this book, um, One Person, No Votes. And, you know, I'm going to, when it comes, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy 20 copies. I'm going to give them out. <laughs> thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. <laughs>